If you have a Bible with you, you can open it to Mark chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 12. If you don't have a Bible, you can find the text in your order of worship, or you can use your phone or anything else you'd like. So I say to you, hear the word of God. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there and questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question all these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would heal the lame, and I pray that you would mend broken hearts. I pray that you would be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart, and in my understanding, and in my mouth, and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen. Well, we're part of the way into a series called Be Healed, that we're really focusing on the healing miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark. And just to remind you, when we look at these healing miracles, we're not looking at them um, as a way, you know, sort of technique so that we can get healing, you know, but, you know for, for my bad knee or this or that. We're really looking at what these healings say about the person and work of Jesus. So often, most weeks, I start with a question. So I'm going to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever done anything or, or at least witnessed something, everyone has witnessed things like this, that are just completely audacious? I mean, just like, and what do I mean by audacious? Basically, Ray, the definition of audacious is, is confident or arrogant uh, with disregard for personal safety, conventional thought, or other restrictions. Shameless boldness. Have you ever acted with shameless boldness for anything? Yeah, I was trying to think in my own life, and the, the first thing that came to my mind when I thought of shameless boldness, of audacity, was my grandmother. My grandmother was Serbian, and she raised me for most of my life. She was the kind of woman, I remember when I was young and, and had, had done something wrong, and she said, come here, boy, and I took off running, and she pulled off one of her flip-flops and <laughs> took me out. <laughs> like a dingo or something, I was down. And so I remember, she determined that she was going to take me to the grand opening of Disney World in Orlando in 1972. And she did. Now that's, that, that, that's only part of the story, because the other part of the story is she was determined that her boy, that's what she called me, boy, her boy was going to get a picture with every single Disney character there was. 
I asked my sister to send me some. Here's one of them. That was cute, wasn't I? Um, <laughs> the, the, the vision quest, though, wasn't Pluto or Goofy or Captain Hook or the three pig. We got all those. The vision quest, the, the thing that she would not stop for, you can imagine, was Mickey. To go to the grand opening of Disney World and not get a picture with her grandson and Mickey. By the way, it's not coming. My sister couldn't find that one. But it's the only one I remember. Because I remember my grandmother dragging me around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. At some point, she saw the tips of black ears. Or at least that's what I saw because I was only about three feet tall. And they were heading toward a, a door. Like, you know, Disney has these doors where the characters can just disappear. And mm, not from Mary Monsilovich, you don't. And she took off running. And just as they were about to close that door, she reached in and grabbed Mickey Mouse. <laughs> and pulled him out. And said, you wouldn't mind taking a picture with my boy, would you? And she, she never let go, by the way. And so Mickey <laughs> took a picture with me, and I believe my sister Amy, if I can find it, I'll show it to you someday. And we're just holding hands, right? We're just along for the ride. That's what I mean by audacious. Like, you're not going to be stopped because the, the, the only way you're going to make something happen is by doing something that other people would deem to be crazy or at least shameless, or at least bold. Most people aren't like that. Now, the great thing, this is one of my favorite passages in the gospel because the, the word audacious, it's not mentioned, but it's all over this passage. Its fingerprints are all over. Every single thing about this passage just smacks of shameless boldness and shameless just audacity. So we're going to look at three things this morning when we consider this passage. Basically, we're going to consider the audacity of faith, we're going to consider the audacity of grace. And finally, we're going to consider the audacity of authority. So that's the audacity of faith, the audacity of grace, and the audacity of authority. So considering first the audacity of faith, let's, let's read the first few lines again. It says, and when he returned to Capernaum, Remember, Jesus had just healed a leper, and the leper went and sort of yapped about it. And because he did that, Jesus couldn't do his ministry anymore. And so he goes home. And home for him in those days was the city, town of Capernaum. So he goes home, and he says, It was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, preaching to him, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So when you consider the audacity of faith here, the audacity of faith actually always begins with an audacious imagination. The problem that most of us have as Christians, frankly, the problem that most of us have if we're not Christians, is we have no imagination whatsoever. We can't imagine that God would want to do anything but leave me in the misery that I'm in right now. That's not what happens here. You have a guy who's a paralytic. We don't know exactly what his, his malady was, but we do know that he had four friends who had a pretty decent imagination, or at least he had a great imagination, and they were easily persuadable. But they thought, we've probably tried everything to get our friend here healed. Let's call him Bob. For this, you know, you know, Bob's been laying on this pallet forever, and, and is there anything else that can be done? Use your imagination. I heard that guy Jesus is back. Remember, he could heal anyone. 
He was healing people at the left and right, everything. So, well, do you think if we took him there that Jesus would heal him? I don't know. Let's try it. What do we have to lose? Right? Imagination, right? They're thinking, imagination. They get to the house, and it's just packed. And you can't even get to the door. Well, what now? Well, nice try. I guess we'll just go home. No. Can you use your imagination? Well, I wonder if there's any other way to get to Jesus. Well, in Palestine in those days, the roofs were made out of thatch. I wonder, think about the thought process that had to go through here. What do you think if we took the back stairs and got up on the roof and just started digging a big hole in the roof and lowered Bob down? That's crazy. That's audacious. Let's do it. What do we have to lose? You see, they, they, most of us, we tend to, at least in my experience, speaking of myself also, we just sort of plod our way through the Christian life. We just womp, 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 we plod away. And we really don't use our imagination about anything. What, what would God do in my life if I, if I stepped out in faith? What might God uh, want me to do? How many of you have, have you ever thought about like maybe going on the mission field and then for like two seconds and then you're like, nah, maybe not? Because our imaginations fail us over and over and over. So you need a big imagination if you're going to have big faith. I remember um, Randy Pope in Atlanta. He's a, the, the pastor of Perimeter Church. He would always say over and over, attempt something so great for God that it's doomed to fail unless God be in it. Well, this is sort of one of those things. Because you guess what? Remember we know about Peter, and Peter was probably a pretty big guy, and he's a fisherman. It's probably Peter's house. And they're getting ready to ruin his roof, right? Attempt something so great for God that it's doomed to fail and that Peter doesn't kill you after you do this. <laughs> so they go up on the roof and they are exercising this sort of audacious faith. And so it says when they, got, they couldn't get near, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Now this is interesting. So they're digging through the roof. In Luke's version of this, uh, passage, we learn that there are also scribes and Pharisees in the house. And as scribes and Pharisees, they have front row seats. So imagine the roof above, Jesus here, the scribes and Pharisees here, and suddenly dirt and thatch and everything starts falling through the roof. Guess who it's falling on? Jesus and the guys that didn't like to get dirty. And I can just imagine them going, what in the heck? And they're just going crazy. And Jesus sitting there with a big old smile. <laughs> this is beautiful. These guys are digging a hole through the roof. That's audacious. And when, it, when it, the, they get there, what does Jesus do? You see, they exercise audacious faith. Audacious faith always takes action, too, by the way. They couldn't just say, well, the place is too full and we can't get through the roof, so we'll just have faith that Jesus will heal the man from out here. Audacious faith takes action. And they take action. And they take action that disturbs the status quo. And what is the response to audacious faith? Well, the response in this passage, certainly, to audacious faith is audacious grace. Remember, audacious means shameless boldness. Notice what it says next. It says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there and questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now th think about this for a second. These men have just dug a hole 
in the roof of someone's home that is not theirs. They have lowered a paralyzed man down in front of Jesus. And on one hand, what would you expect Jesus to say in that moment? He's clearly um, pleased, if you will. He's clearly not upset with them. You would expect, and all the guys in the room, and all the guys on the roof, and the man sitting on the pallet, what would you have expected Jesus to say in that moment? I know what I would have expected him to say. Be healed. You've exercised audacious faith. Be healed. Get Rise up and walk. And instead, he says what? Son, your sins are forgiven. Imagine the guys on the roof. What? The guy on the pallet? Be, I was trying to, he would, what can you, he's stuck there because he can't move. He's paralyzed. This is awkward, right? <laughs> we just ruined this guy's house and I can't move. And of course, the scribes and the Pharisees. It was awkward and it was audacious for everybody. You see, what the first thing Jesus did is he offered this man, he, he gave this man not what he wanted, but what he needed. Man wanted to be healed from his paralysis. What he needed was to be healed from his sins. And what makes grace so audacious is that grace always, only ever is offered to those who have nothing else to bring. You see, the definition of grace is unmerited favor. And the, the paralytic, by, by definition, he couldn't help himself. He couldn't heal himself. He couldn't do anything for himself. So in order for him to be healed, in order for anything to happen to him, it had to be done for him and to him. And Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. The other reason grace is audacious is because grace says that you can't do anything to earn it. And that's why probably the Pharisees and the scribes are so upset. Notice what they say. They, they, who does, why does this man speak like that? He's blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They have spent their whole lives being good. They've spent their whole lives working to please God, working to be obedient to the law, working to show everyone else how good they are. And in one fell swoop, Jesus tells a man who can't do anything for himself, you, your sins are forgiven. You're the one. And they ask a good question, but they don't have the right answer in mind. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? There's actually two people that can forgive sins, right? God's not the only person that can forgive sins. Either God can forgive sins or an offended party can forgive sins. In other words, if I, if I offend my wife and I ask forgiveness, it's not just God who's going to offer me forgiveness, I hope, but it's, it's my wife who will offer me forgiveness, the offended party. And what forgiveness means is that someone is paying someone else's bill. Anytime forgiveness happens, someone else is paying someone else's bill. So if, if you offend me and I say, I forgive you, that doesn't make the offense go away. What I'm saying in that moment is I'm going to pay the bill for your offense. And since the bill is paid, we're not going to bring it up anymore. And you see, what Jesus is, it's when Jesus speaks here, he's either trying to make a statement about the fact that I am God, which is true, or he's making a statement about the fact that he ultimately can say, son, your sins are forgiven, because he ultimately is the one who's going to pay the bill. He's probably getting at both of them here. But you don't want to miss that part. 
that Jesus is the one who will pay the bill. Jesus is the one who will go to the cross and bear our sins. Remember uh, 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I might become the righteousness of God in him. That Jesus, the one who would pay the bill, tells the man, your sins are forgiven. That's why he can say it. That's why he can extend grace. And grace is audacious because it tells the person who who wants to earn it, you can't. It tells the person who has spent their life being good in order to please God that that's not good enough. You have to receive it. You have to let someone else pay your bill. Some of you, I know, have been in church your whole lives. In your whole lives, you really haven't experienced that much joy. You haven't experienced that much freedom. And the reason for that is because you've been constantly trying to pay your own bill. How about today we make a deal? Today be the day. If you've been in church your whole life, and never, to let today be the day you say, Jesus, I'm going to let you pay my bill. I've been here 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. Today, I'm going to let you pay the bill, and I'm going to stop. I'm going to quit trying to do that. See, grace is audacious because it tells the self-righteous person you can't earn it, but it's also audacious because it tells the person who thinks they don't deserve it that you can receive it. It tells the person, that, you know, how many, I can't tell you how many people I talk to, and they say, Tommy, if you knew what I've done, You knew how bad I was. And grace says this, I don't care. It doesn't matter how big, how deep, how wide your sins are, Jesus will cover it. He is willing to pay that bill. The question is, will you receive it? You see, so grace is, there's an audacity of faith here that always acts, but, but it's met with an audacity of grace. And the interesting thing here is grace Grace really isn't that audacious unless there's authority to back it up. And that's sort of what they're asking here, the Pharisees. You see, who, who, at some level, it would be easy for anybody if these men lowered their friend through the roof. Let's say Jesus was just the average Joe, and he said, my son, your sins are forgiven. How, could, how would you know? There's nothing to see there. I mean, there's, there's nothing attached to that. And Jesus hears them. He, he hears what's going on in their hearts even. And he answers with the audacity of authority. Notice in um, verse 8, it says, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to themselves, he said, he said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise up, take your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise up pick up your bed, and go home. So at, some, at this point, it's just words, and he hears them questioning, who does he think he is? And Jesus turns to them, asks them a question, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Now, how would we answer that? I think it would be easier to say your sins are forgiven. Everyone would agree that, because it's just words. There's no way to tell if you're right or wrong. But then I love the fact that he doesn't keep arguing with them. He just turns to the paralytic and he says, I say to you, rise up and walk. And did you notice his response? Immediately, it says, he rose rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them so that they were all amazed and glorified God. We never saw anything like this. The paralytic, he's not asking questions. He's just receiving He doesn't say, are you sure? Are you sure you want me to rise up and walk? Jesus says, you take up your mat, rise up and walk. And he just gets up and goes. He's not asking questions. And it's in Luke's version, it says he glorified God on the way. He's praising God. 
What Jesus has done here is he is, he is he has shown by his miracle that he has actually the authority to do what he says. That the miracle of healing this man bears witness to the fact that he in fact does have the actual authority to forgive sins. And so now the question laid before the scribes and the Pharisees and everyone else in the room is what are you going to do with him? In other words, they've said, who is, who is this who thinks he can forgive sins? Jesus has just proven to them. He's just shown them. I'm the one who makes the lame to, to walk. And by that, you also see I have the authority to, to forgive sins. Will you receive that? That's always the question when we deal with Jesus. What are you going to do with him? Are you going to receive him? Or are you going to reject him? Are you going to receive his grace or are you going to keep trying to work for it? You know, I'll close with this story. It's one of my favorite stories. I know some, many of you have heard it before. It was when I was in seminary, you know, 20 years ago. And it's the story about the back row boys, right? So when I was in seminary, I had a friend, Paul Warren. And when we were in seminary, he was the president of the student body. And I was sort of like his henchman, right? <laughs> I was the one, I remember the president of the seminary used to introduce us to donors, and he'd say, oh, this is Tommy Allen, a high-risk, high-gain student, right? So we were a little bit different. And we were taking a class at the time. It was by a theologian named R.C. Sproul. He was very famous, and so the class was packed. There were about 80 people in the class, and Paul and I were famous for sitting on the back row of every class, right? That's why they called us the back row boys. And so we sit on the back row, and I remember Dr. Sproul stood up front, and he said, I'm going to make this easy for you. Right, systematic theology number three. I've assigned 5,000 pages of reading. Right, it's one semester for one class, and we each all have about four of the classes. And the final exam is going to be three questions from the class and one from somewhere in the reading. And he taught the class, and after class, everyone just freaked out. We're going to have a final exam with one question from somewhere in 5,000 pages. And immediately, people in the class started splitting it up. Before 10 minutes was over, they had all 5,000 pages split up into 80 parts, and they started going around the room saying, okay, you have this, th these pages, you have these pages, you have these pages, and you're supposed to read them and take notes and come and be ready to give the rest of the class your summary of them. And they got to the back row, and Paul and I in unison said, nah, we're good. I remember it was our friend Ken. He said, you're not going to read any of this? We said, eh, take our chances. And he said, well, it wouldn't be fair if we gave you our notes if, after everyone does all the work. And I said, eh, don't worry about it. We're fine. Didn't do anything. So we, this whole semester goes by. And the final exams, we all show up. They're passed out. And we look at the exam. Four questions. And he forgot to put one on there from the 5,000 pages. 78 people were furious. Two people were laughing and leaping and praising God. Everyone hated us. But it's a great example of grace. Because here's the thing. They could have done all the work and still not done a great job on the test. Basically, he was giving them a hundred even though they did the work. You see, whether you do the work or don't try to do the work, the question is, will you receive grace and how are you going to respond to it? Some of us respond to grace by getting angry. 
because we want to show God how good we are, how much we've done, you know, what, what kind of good people we are. Don't do that. How will you respond to grace? I'm going to encourage you this morning, don't leave this place without at least considering whether or not you're willing to receive it, whether or not you're willing to believe that Jesus has paid your bill, whether or not you're willing to, to leave this place um, free of your sins by grace and grace alone. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would, um, you would continue to open our eyes to grace. Those of us who preach grace need to know more about it. Those of us who've never experienced it, maybe from friends or from family or from the world, we can experience it from you, and I pray that this morning we would. In Christ's name we pray, amen and amen.